right. Um, welcome to Cannabis is a Good Neighbor podcast from Anderson Porter Design. This is our episode number five, and I am super stoked to have Sarah Chase and David Valencourt joining me today. This is Public Safety 501 course. This is a master's course in where is the cannabis industry headed uh, in a health and public safety, or at least that's my take on it, because Cannabis is a Good Neighbor is really designed to talk about issues sort of surrounding cannabis from maybe from the layperson's perspective or from the legislator's perspective. Uh, and I have two experts here who can help uh, fill in where are we at today and where are we going in 2022 from a perspective of drug manufacturing, really embracing this industry as a drug manufacturing industry. So Sarah Chase, could you please give us, I don't know, give us some highlights and backgrounds to help our listeners know who you are and where you're coming from? Sure, Brian. And and thanks for having me on the on the show with you guys. And congratulations on your fifth episode. We're hitting the milestones here. I'm I'm Sarah Chase. I'm the executive director for the Council for Federal Cannabis Regulation, and we're a, a nonprofit based down here in DC. Um, our main mission really is to help um, bring you know evidence based, well informed science to the federal regulatory agencies um, to be a conduit of information that flows freely between the people within the industry, uh, with government, with business, um, and to really work with everybody um, who's sort of heavily involved in this to normalize um, the use of cannabis um, as both a sustainable product, as a health product, as a medicinal product, um, and to, you know, with normalization to help legitimize it. Um, and really with everybody in the industry to destigmatize it too. Um, and that includes, you know, expungitive records. It includes working with people on diversity and inclusion initiatives. It's, it sort of runs across the board. Um, and I will state we're, we're a very unique in um, group and that we are very objective um, and we're sort of a neutral third party so that we are able to work, I think, more effectively and efficiently with some of the federal agencies um, in order to bring this information forward and to really be um, working with all of you as sort of a unified voice for the industry um, with basically the, um, the health and safety of the American people is first and foremost in our minds. Awesome. And I'm going to want to get into that here as we talk, some of the things that you've been coming out with and, and, and publishing. Uh, but let's introduce David Valencourt. And David and I have a long history together, uh, both on the Facility Design Committee. Uh, but David, tell us about your your background and some of the things that you're involved in. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. It's uh, great to be here. And uh, Sarah, so great to get to see you again. I'm really excited for this. Thank you for putting this together, guys. Um, so I'm David Valencourt. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called the GMP Collective. We're, we are really working with our team of consultants and experts to bring credibility to the marketplace, the cannabis and hemp marketplace, that is, through quality management. And, you know, one component of quality management is current good manufacturing practices, which I know we'll get into. Um, in addition to that, I serve as uh, I'll be incoming vice chair, probably vice chair by the time this um, episode drops uh, for ASTM's committee D37 on cannabis. And that's ASTM International, which is a 120 year old standards development organization um, launched, helped launch and support uh, member driven volunteer based standards development group committee D37 on cannabis to really bring credibility to the industry where we develop the the scope is to develop and maintain standards and guidance materials for cannabis and its products. The work of this, you know, is coordinated with other ASTM committees and other organizations having mutual interest. So we've currently got over a thousand members across 30 countries working on the consensus standards process, which can be utilized by industry, um, all stakeholders, really, you know, industry from how to actually follow best practices. What are those best practices? Regulators can adopt them and incorporate them by reference as over 2000 ASTM standards are currently done in the referenced in the Code of Federal Regulations in the U.S., let alone globally. And beyond that, you know, really can protects consumer health, which is everything that we're here to talk about, right? Without these best practices, without the work we're doing, without the FDA showing up, we, we're providing a disadvantage to the consumers today and their health and safety is, is for and first and foremost. So it's really fun and awesome to be here and through all the work that, yeah, Brian, you and I do at NCIA and, and elsewhere. It's, it's a labor of love and really rewarding. Yeah. So, so listeners know, yeah, David and I know each other, uh, years now. David David's from Massachusetts, lives out in Colorado now. Um, 
uh, but we met way back through mutual friends and David now consults on projects that we work with. So it's really great to have, uh, to have that. And David has introduced me to Sarah and Sarah, I'm just absolutely fascinated to hear more about what, uh, you mentioned earlier about a news announcement. So you're working as your organization to really influence policy at the, at the federal level. And what, what I want to bring forth here is how is, so to the folks who don't know that cannabis is a drug manufacturing or a drug production industry and not just, it's not in the basement anymore, right? We are the people involved in facility design and, and, and people involved in every aspect is it's a drug delivery system all the way from from growing the plant to extracting and manufacturing the plant and delivering the plant to people. Yeah. And, and you're, you're also dealing with a, with a long history too. So you, you have a basically an illicit market that's now moved into to the illicit space. So there's a lot of education that has to occur with people who have been operating sort of on the fringe in, in various areas throughout this whole time. And I think, you know, what, what you do with standards and what you eventually do with regulation is that you really start to sense sort of bars that um, inform and ensure he, human health and safety across the board. So, um, you know, it's, it's vital, the work that, that GMP does with, with David, the work that you do in facility design, you know, even from making sure that you're OSHA compliant and, you know, you want to make sure that you've got the sinks before you pour the foundations and you don't have to strip everything out and sort of redo it based upon code and regulation for various areas. And it's really, you know, my, my father was, um, he was an architect and he was in construction. And it's it's the same thing. It's it's design think to make sure that you're installing the, the best practices, you're building the best foundations, and you're working towards you know various standards. Now the, the difficulty that we're dealing with right now in this industry is that there aren't sort of uniform standards across the board, which is why federal regulation really starts to make a lot of sense because then you can sort of say, all right, here are the main targets, the places that you really have to go to in, in terms of standards. And not just in your your facility design, but also in the you know dosing is, what the product is, what the labeling is, what the packaging is. I mean, everything from seed to the, the final consumer, you've got to be in consideration of what those regulatory standards are. And right now it's it's just sort of a hodgepodge of all of the states kind of coming up with their own variations and, and sort of rules on all this. And that creates a, a lot of chaos at the end of the day. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't incentivize people sometimes to move from an illicit to illicit market. So we have to come up with ways to incentivize that too. Um, and ultimately, talking about you know federal regulation, that's also something that limits corporate liability too, which is really good because then you can get outside investment. You can do things like safe banking, and you can the, the you know you can do international trade. All the doors really start to open up. Um, and uh, to to sort of help with that, um, what CFCR we're we're sort of focused on. We're, we're sort of the nerds in, in the group here because we're focused on the, the ways you can start to create pathways and start to open those initial doors. Um, so yesterday, Brian, you had talked about the, the bit of news that we had. Uh, we sent a letter to Secretary Becerra, um, uh, who's the, the head of Health and Human Services, uh, with a CC to Janet Woodcock, who's the current commissioner over at FDA. And basically, you know, our main point is that the federal regulatory agencies, specifically HHS and the FDA, need to address a public health crisis, which has basically been unfolding across this country for a number of years. And it's a national crisis that's been the result of erratic state-led legalization and the increasing severity of um, low THC or um, cannabis products, basically hemp, that was opened and created by the, the Farm Bill in 2018. So the view of CFCR is that it's critical that we work to overcome the choke point that's been repeatedly pointed out by the FDA, um, in, in which constrains it from regulating a lot of these cannabinoids. Um, so the current legislative attempts, including like the CBD Product Safety and Standardization Act that was implemented, or not implemented, but introduced, I think it was last week, um, they're, they're stagnant. Like these legislative processes right now aren't really going to go anywhere, whether it's the CAO bill or the MACE bill, you know, they're, they're not going to see the light of day for a while. Break that down for us. What, there's a lot of three-letter acronyms there, so maybe some people don't quite know the jargon here. So your organization, CFCR, has written a letter to Health and Human Services to try, how do you see that stagnation? What is that stagnation, again, where the, where the low THC coming out of the farm bill is impeding what development or, or growth or 
Well, it's it's a little more specific than that. So what we believe is that the, the FDA's reading of the exclusionary clauses, which were actually put into the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, um, is preventing the regulation of products containing CBD and has sort of hamstrung the agency um, while at the same time you have untested and unregulated and sometimes very dangerous products continuing to, to sort of pr proliferate throughout the country. Um, and that's creating a needless risk to public health. So our, our point with FDA is, all right, well, let's waive the drug exclusion rule and start to work on regulating these products right away, which we know can be regulated right now because they are in the market and they are legal under the Farm Bill. If I can add to that, right, to your point, and you're, you guys are the experts, right, Sarah, over there, which I'm so grateful for that level of the nerd work that's going on, right? You've got that. You've got the, you know, engineers and the standards developers. I call ASTM D37 the nerd group as well, for sure, for, you know, complementary reasons. And, you know, without knowing you can maybe speak on you know how the drug exclusionary um act um rule can work right but back to the point you know astm i just helped them develop a white paper on uh delta 8 thc and it was done in conjunction with the u.s pharmacopoeia which is a 200 year old nonprofit or scientific organization that essentially has monographs and pharmacopoeia chapters general chapters that ensures that our world's medicine is safe literally the world in addition to just the united states where they started in 1820 and the takeaway from you know our research and what we published through astm and the u.s pharmacopoeia is back to it's not just delta 8 that's unsafe right it's that's not really the issue it's the lack of oversight it's the framework it's the lack of oversight and understanding the process and because of the farm bill of 2018 we've opened up pandora's box and forget whether it's legal or not forget what the fda says forget what the feds say there is a multi-billion dollar marketplace that consumers can go to 7-eleven they can go to their local grocery store they can go to you know whole foods and you know convenience stores everywhere and get product and as a consumer you know to the untrained eye to folks outside of you know this bubble that we're in talking today it's fairly reasonable to assume that it's on a store shelf must be safe right must be overseen by somebody it wouldn't be sold in a supply chain and available at a publicly, you know, registered, you know, legal company, if it wasn't, if it wasn't safe, right? But that's patently false, right? There's literally no oversight and it's through this void. And if we don't correct that, we're, we're going to be in big trouble. It's going to be just a matter of time until we see other issues crop up. We've all already seen recalls, heavy metals being in regulated products. What's in the unregulated products and who's going to oversee and ensure that? And where are the standards to assess whether it's toxicological data or et cetera, we need that because we have so much opportunity here within the cannabis industry and we don't want to do a disservice to the reputation of our industry because back to the whole point of this podcast, right? Cannabis is a good neighbor and let's make sure that we're having the safeguards in place so that the products are safe and that everybody can have a trusted marketplace. So I'm speaking now as a practitioner. So I'm joining this conversation to say that as, a, as an architect working in the cannabis industry, I'm finding that the this disparate regulation, right? Different different laws in different states lead to a lack of standardization, right? And so therefore you're saying, yeah, how is a consumer to know when they go into the into the into the gas station and buy a CBD product versus going into a dispensary? Maybe it's a medical dispensary, maybe it's a uh, adult use dispensary. Is the product safe? Is it controlled? Is it the same? And I know uh, trying to follow regulations as a designer of facilities is difficult, right? So we're looking for those standards, and then we're looking for the standards to be adopted federally. So quick, you know, quick snapshot here, the industry is nascent, right? The industry is still growing, and we don't have complete consistency among states. Some states use, and we talked about this in New York last month, right? The big news coming out of New York was for all of the folks looking to develop a business in New York State, you will be required to follow the Code of Federal Regulation, 21 CFR Part 111, uh, but more specifically Part 117, which is for food, GMP for food. Uh, and I, uh, we know that Connecticut also follows that standard. I think both of you have some experience in Connecticut that might be also relevant to our to our listeners is how these new states, so we look at the, the whole catchment area around New, new York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and the New England states, that's a massive amount of people, 
right? And how do those people know in those various states that there's consistency across product coming out of those states? So what are, I don't know, what are some takeaways about CGMP and its implementation that might be, um, I don't know, that you could add, David or Sarah? I have sort of a, a question for both of you too, because varying by state, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe in Connecticut, um, the cannabis is, is regulated under consumer affairs. I think that's correct. Yeah. So in in it, it's kind of funny because in each of the states it goes to sort of a different office or they establish a new office for it, um, and each of them comes at it from a different perspective. So you can automatically think that the the philosophy or the ethos, let's say, of of consumer affairs is going to be dramatically different um, from any like from a, a state where maybe it goes to their version of health and human services. Ohio, it's the Board of Pharmacy. Massachusetts yeah. created their own entity for it. Some right right there in the three states. Yep. Right. Some states do it through the Department of Agriculture. Wow. So you that's have a all, of these, different... all of these sort of, I think, differing perspectives about how cannabis should be sort of regulated at the state level, um, which does inform what we can do at the federal level. But it is sort of going back and saying, well, what's the best practice from, from each of these states? Um, we, we did a, a pretty cool webinar a few weeks back with two women who I uh, appreciate immensely. Um, one is Jillian Shower at Canra, and the other was Toy Hutchinson, who, who really sort of worked to put this all together for the state of Illinois. Um, and they talked about some of the, um, the best practices from, from Illinois and what Jillian had seen sort of across the board in all 50 states and how that can really inform sort of where we're going with, with federal regulation. That all to say is, you know, one of the, the concepts that was brought up in the um, Cannabis Administrative and Opportunity Act, which is the CAO that I had referenced earlier as one of our many acronyms, um, <laughs> that, that was put forward by uh, uh, Schumer, Booker, and Wyden. Um, and one of the, um, the ways in which they thought this could be regulated was to create an office of cannabis products that would fall under FDA. Now, CFCR does support that idea, um, but with the recognition and that, that when you call on the FDA to just create an office out of thin air, right, you've got to be able to fund that too. Um, so what we're sort of suggesting is that, all right, that's a great idea to create this office of, of, uh, office of cannabis products under FDA, but you have to put some sort of funding mechanism behind that in order to staff it up, in order to give it the resources it needs in order to do its job too. Um, so we would call on Congress to say, let's earmark a certain percentage of um, the appropriations or, or you know, let's, let's put towards an appropriation in order to fund this office and give the FDA the authority and the power that it needs to do its job effectively. Man, you've got. Uh, if I can jump in and add, you know, kind of add, I guess, or to address your question there, Sarah, right? At the, you've got me, my head spinning with some things, right? States' rights, and you know, the states. How you mentioned, you know, is it under Department of Health? Is it under Department of Revenue? Right, where right. I live currently in Colorado, it's a completely different mindset. And who's trained to go out there and you know enforce and make sure that the programs are follow, you know, are are enforced according to you know the regulations that have been implemented, the laws and you know the laws that have been implemented, and that's different from state to state, right? Uh, ultimately, they're all abiding by essentially, you know, some version of the coal memo, right? Where that really got started in terms of, you know, states are mandated with making sure that you're not pretty, you know, selling to minors, right? That you're keeping it within your state boundaries. Um, you know, those, those basic frameworks to allow the state programs to run. Um, I was just listening to a uh, great, uh, the Attorney General's Alliance, which is a great group that they have, their, they, have a, they have a cannabis group within that, you know, and that's, you know, I think something like 46 or 42 states attorneys generals, um, you know, out of the 50 states, there are active members and part of it. And they're one thing that I learned, not learned, but, you know, remembered from pulling back my, you know, U.S. history and civics lessons is, you know, the states voted to form the federal government. Like we voted to form the federal government. And, you know, how is that playing out with states' rights and the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act asked a lot of questions right around we need to figure out how that interplay is going to be because you can't really disrupt and just 
disentangle or dismantle these state marketplaces, but we do have to create eventually, you know, federal frameworks in interstate commerce, just like we live in 2021, we live in a global marketplace. So there's, there's a lot to consider and it comes back to, you know, the health and safety framework. And I think your point about how we fund the FDA or how we fund an office is so key because another thing I'm reminded of is, you know, the level of funding for the FDA. It's something like $9 per person, I think is the number, you know, per capita across, you know, for funding. And when you think about 25% of consumer goods of all products that we spend our, our, our paychecks on has some sort of FDA oversight, including microwaves, because radiologics is all included. That's a big mandate to protect public health and safety. And, you know, dietary supplements are already a major challenge for them to oversee. You know, it's really kind of on a risk-based approach. So are we going to ensure that they have the right resources and that we're setting the industry up for success at a federal level too? I think those are really key points. And I think you have to be empathic towards FDA right now too, because they have been slammed by COVID. I mean, that's... you know, talk about, you know, they've, they've already been acting under limited resources to begin with, as most most agencies do right now. Um, and you have the, the sort of added burden of, of COVID on top of that at this stage. And, you know, it's it's no wonder it's taking a long time for things to happen. I mean, let's let's just it's taken a long time for us to sort of get back into the, the swing of things here, too. So I, I have a, a great deal of, of empathy for them, for, for the job that they're doing. And personally, I'm you know, I'm I'm a very satisfied American knowing that the FDA and the CDC and NIH and all these other agencies are out there looking after public health. Um, and we're lucky to have them to do it. And I think we should, we should be spending more to help them do it. And the other point that we, we may be overlooking here too, is that yes, regulation is a burden, right? It's a burden on all industries, but it's a burden that creates a lot of really good opportunity because it does open up, you know, huge trade markets. Um, it opens up, additional interstate markets, internet commerce, um, you know, for from our perspective, even working with our DEI and our access to capital committee, it opens up the Small Business Administration and grants and additional funding and sort of all ways that that um, you can be supportive of the businesses within this industry um, that, that wouldn't necessarily have access to it until you have a legalized and a legitimate industry out of the cannabis industry. Um, and I... I wanted to touch on a point too that you were talking about, David, um, with sort of the various issues of states' rights and things. The competing bill to the CAO that's out there, which is um, Nancy Mace's bill, um, which she put forward um, early part of December, it's interesting. It's it's getting some bipartisan support. Um, the bill sort of regulates um, more of the industry under TTB, which I, f- I forget what that stands for. Taxation and um tax and trade taxation bureau trade and taxation bureau something like that yeah Yeah. tobacco may be in there too um but it it is it is essentially the bureau right now that um that wine and spirits falls under alcohol wine and spirits um and that that's very well it's interesting the way they've done it the way they put forward this part of the bill because it still allows fda to handle the health and human safety aspects but it's more sort of on the taxation side that it falls under TTB, which is solving a little bit of an issue because each of the states has a, has a varying tax rate on cannabis right now, and they all sort of approach it differently. And then you are going to burden the system again by adding, if you do federal regulation and federal taxation, what you don't want to have happen is you don't want to tax people out of the market. And that is both the producers and the, the, the buyers. Right, because you could face double indemnity, and you would be paying an astronomical amount both to produce and to buy the products. So, you know, that's that's one of those sort of unintended consequences that we really have to think about is how you how you do tax um, these products. Um, and I'll I'll quickly, and then I'll, I'll throw it back to you guys. I'll um, go back to what I was talking about with the drug exclusion rule too. Right now, the the DER. Um, Preclude CBD being sold to consumers other than by prescription. So like Epidiolex and, and that's that's by prescription. Um, and as mentioned, sort of I mentioned earlier, CFCR, we sent a letter to HHS basically and, and more broadly the Biden administration to address this in the public health crisis that are, that's being created by unregulated psychoactive products being sold on the internet and across state lines without any restriction. Wow. Yeah, that's major. When we have incredible restrictions on what is a productive market, cannabinoids, right? But it, 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 there's to know that there's an illegal market or an un, excuse me, an unregulated market that's allowed to, to work freely is, is very frustrating. 
Yeah. And it, right. It, I mean, it comes back to the whole, you know, I think in a couple of ways, you know, back to the theme of the podcast, you know, cannabis is a good neighbor. And I, one of my favorite titles I've been just watching, like, Brian, you're brilliant. Yeah. I love what you guys came up with. It makes so much sense. And you've got all the data, you know, you speak fairly regularly right at, you know, town boards and commission and offices and whatnot, you know, and about, you know, the value of it. And that's, that's just today, right? That's, that's, with a nascent industry that's with you know states doing the best that they can it's really going to be amazing to see as we mature right how it's going to protect the the businesses that are putting in the hard work that are designing it and committed to you know patient and consumer safety if we figure out the yeah the interplay at the federal level with you know ttb from taxation and then but let's not forget back to you know the fda and as you mentioned sarah right, you support that let's the federal food drug and cosmetic act i think is the one thing that if anybody recognizes like read that read the first you know kind of outline first paragraph of it it is very clear that the fda is a scientific organization that is mandated to oversee these types of products period whether you like it or not you know it's the it's it may not be perfect but it's the literally the best we've got in the world it is the gold standard and we have that we have that resource we can provide that to our marketplace and set just a minimum level of requirements to ensure public health and safety. What's our path through that? So I know, <clears throat> Sarah, you mentioned CANRA. That's an organization of states that have regulating uh, bodies. And I know that there's, from speaking to them, I've, I've made it a point through my work at the NCIA to reach out and talk to CANRA member states. Um, and to, how do we get these standards adopted state by state because right now in my interviews with them they're radically different what one state adopts is not necessarily what another state adopts i I would say that is one of the challenges is that we don't know sort of what the bar is for each state in terms of um highest or 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 sort of best practices on each on each state now i I know canra's sort of begun to and I don't want to speak for them because I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that they have started to look at what some of the best practices are so that they can establish some of the standards um, so that when you do have a new state that opens up, you can at least provide them with some very sort of specific guidelines. Um, but that, that really, to me, ultimately is what, what will happen with federal regulation, too, is that you'll have the, the highest level of standards. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think... There's so many things that are sort of that have left like FDA and HHS a bit hamstrung because right now you have a lot of untested and unregulated and sometimes very dangerous products that are able to proliferate around the country. Um, And it's creating sort of a needless risk to public health right now. And it's also from our perspective, it really impedes sound scientific discovery, too, um, and the ability to sort of rapidly grow a very promising domestic industry. so one of the things that, that CFCR has done is that we have various partner organizations that we work with, and we do work with one um, out of Europe called AHA, which is the European Industrial Hemp Association. And they are doing a series of safety studies right now that we believe the FDA um, will be able to use. And part of what we're, we've brought up to the attention of the agency in our letter is that um, uh, we can, under NDA, bring the results of these safety studies and toxicology studies as well to the FDA. And that's something that the agency itself has recognized that they would like to see in the, in a gap analysis that they, that they put out. Um, they want to see toxicology reports. So, you know, what, what happens to your liver when you're using CBD or THC products? Um, what is the effect on pregnant women and what is um, some of the effect on the male reproductive system? You know, funny, they don't mention the female reproductive system other than if you're pregnant. But, hey. What's your pregnant man? <laughs> um, other that's in a whole nother argument um but uh but what we would like to do is say to the fda when we can bring them the results of these studies is all right are these are these sufficient for you right can, can we get some feedback is is this the bar or does it need to be higher and it's okay if it needs to be higher but it's also okay if that's the bar too and that's and that's something that they'll accept because that will advance the industry forward light years in, in just sort of a matter of months without the FDA spending or even the industry spending a lot of money on, on external or, or additional studies. Um, I think, though, that we will see a situation, this is just me me personally thinking this through, 
um, that that you will see a situation where the FDA says, well, we're still going to need this, 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 and this. Like they're going to have more more boxes to check. That's fine because I think that's just doing their due diligence. Um, and in that case, it will sort of fall on the industry to come up with the funds necessary really to conduct additional safety studies that, that are evidence-based um, and also, you know, sort of include a lot of biometric data and toxicology data that the FDA will require. Um, and again, speaking as a, as a consumer, good, because, you know, the, the more that you can know about these products, the, the more um, informed and educated you are, I think the better and the better for the industry, because that's, that's how you build trust in companies. Um, you know, it's, it's the difference between going to, um, you know, trying a new product for the first time that you've, you've never been exposed to before. And then going back to your sort of name brand product that you've had around for a long time that you know is safe, that you know is regulated, and you can feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I trust this product. I'm always going to buy it. Like, I'm always going to buy Dawn soap because I like what they do to help bring oil off of penguins. And and I know that it's, you know, there's, <laughs> I'm just going to throw out a few names, but that's that's the kind of feeling you want to get. You want to know what what where the product's coming from and you want to have trust that it's going to do what it says it's going to do for you. That is, that, that, that is an awesome segue because that is what brings this back home for me as a, as, as an architect and also as a consumer is that regulations are in place so that the customer gets the same product every time, right? Dawn soap does not suddenly work differently on a Tuesday or in November than it did in, in May. It is the same product. And that I know is a frustration amongst cannabis consumers is that when you buy a product one month, right, and you're taking it, let's say, for narcolepsy or just general sleep disorders, you want to know that it's going to be the same product. You want to be able to, A, that it's in the store, right, that, it's, that it didn't get sold out, right? So there's, there's the supply chain issues and there's the consistency issues. And that is at the heart of what we're talking about is that the facilities that produce them, the organizations that produce them have consistency. It's, it's called Food Factory or something along those lines. It's a, it's a National Geographic program that I love to watch because it takes you through the production facilities of all these sort of different food products. I had no idea that there was a chief chocolate scientist at Mars so talk about missing one's calling. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Willy Wonka. We all wanted to be Willy Wonka. Yeah. And, and, but it's, it's fascinating to watch, you know, how the production lines are set up and, and David and, and Brian speaking to sort of design think, and then also safe human health and safety, you know, like the fact that the packaging goes through a metal detector to make sure that there's no metals or pieces of materials in there that are going to, you know, cause harm to you when you open it. Um, and, and the, the point about Dawn soap, yes, the formulations are really important because you want to make sure that there's consistency across the board. Um, I loved your, your statement that you're always, you know, it's not, it's not Dawn soap on Tuesday and then something different on Thursday, you know, and, right. it, and the same is true. Um, mostly true. I would say there, there are some nefarious characters there too, but in, in sort of the wine and spirits industry, you know, Merlot is always Merlot. Cabernet yep. is always Cabernet. Pinot is always Pinot. Like, you know, you, there is some consistency now through, and that's through centuries, basically, of, of coming up with all these these um, standards and regulations that are, yes, within the wine industry, a little haphazard, um, probably a little bit more standardized here in the United States. And, and also, as an example, in Germany with beer standards, um, you know, very high standards and quality and formulations and even dosing. So th that's fascinating, right? This is an agricultural product. This is a horticultural product. This is a natural plant that we can talk about entourage effects and all these things. But when you bring up the wine and consistency, you know, there's a reason that the sommelier has a job and there's a reason that you send a wine bottle back from your table. You shouldn't be embarrassed to send a bottle back if it doesn't meet. But you, A, you have to have a nose for it. And you have to have a palate for it. You have to be a, a, a real conscious consumer. To what degree are we then eradicating that and I don't think we're talking about it. I think these both of these things coexist. As an industry, producing cannabis as a product for, for people to consume, there is going to be a, there is raw flour. In many states, not in Georgia yet, but you know, in many states, you're going to have the ability to buy flour. And that is maybe something that might be considered temperamental in the way that a wine bottle might be temperamental. But when we shift to, say, gummies and chocolates, 
there's an understanding that that is 100% consistent, right? That if it's already gone through a kill step, for example, it's already had, you know, safe practices, people wear gloves, they wash their hands. Those are things that the, the, the buying public needs to know. Yeah, I, I remember going out to St. Louis one time to see the um, Anheuser-Busch facility where, where they make Budweiser. And in the, um, in the tanks where they actually store the, the fermented beer, the cleaning process for it, you know, it's, it's very, it's regimented. There's a, there's a, there's a whole systems of control in there. It's check this box, check, you know, you got to go in there. The guy scrubs the container. That's the kind of safety procedures that we want to see within this industry. And that's the sort of safety guidelines that you really want to ensure um, in the manufacturing process, also in the growing process. Um, something, this is a, I'll throw this out there as an idea because I've mentioned it a few times to people. And this is this is not the uh, the statement of CFCR. I just want to make this clear. This is my, my own sort of personal thought. Um, is that it seems like it might solve a few problems if you had sort of a grading system for cannabis, where you have sort of like A grade plants, which are for um, medical products. I would put medical and recreational actually in the same category because it's still for human consumption. So let's say A grade products for human consumption, um, B grade products, animal consumption. C-grade products for um, uh, industry or sort of clothing, anything that's material goods. And that's not inconsistent with what you already see in current agricultural situations with, with corn and soy and other major commodities. Um, so they do have a grading system for it. And in, in my opinion, that, that might solve a problem for a lot of the farmers too, who would just like to say, all right, these are the standards I need for A-grade cannabis and I'll grow that this way. These are the standards I need to have for B grade and C grade. Um, and then it's sort of like track and trace from there on. It leaves the farm and this grade goes to these um, these buyers and these labs and these extraction places. And this one goes to um, these manufacturers and, you know, horse bedding and, you know, kind of fodder and whatever. Um, oh yeah, hempcrete or, you know, fiber for jute in the automobile industry, yeah. right? Those yep. are, yeah. I mean, Jeff Mailing, I don't know if you know who he is. He's the um, the head of the National Hemp Association. And uh, David and I saw him at CWCB Expo not too long ago. He's got a car, a BMW that's actually on the interior. The whole interior is made out of hemp. It's amazing. It's a great sustainable product. And you even see, I think he's, um, you know, there's, there's other car manufacturers that are interested in this. Um, Google and Microsoft are looking at ways to build um, textiles and some of their their facilities out of hemp. So there's so much that can be done with this. Um, and you know, great example: U.S. military um, during World War II, a lot of the clothing was made out of hemp. In China, their army, all of their clothing is still made out of hemp. So it's a huge, wonderful, sustainable product that we're still overlooking to to a great extent. Um, and I don't think we should be in the future. I'll, I'll go back to I'll go back to and I'm and I'm quoting here from uh, David Palaszczuk's book Branding the Bud. But 1619, Jamestown Colony, Virginia, America's first cannabis law was enacted. However, instead of making the plant illegal, all farmers were mandated to grow hemp seed. 1619 in the United States colonies, it was a mandate. There were times at which hemp was used as currency. You could you could pay your taxes in hemp because think about the shipping and the whaling industry. The snail cloth was made of hemp. The, the, so, the uniforms of the sailors were made out of hemp. The ropes were made out of hemp. It, the oil that you burn in the lamp was hemp seed oil. It was an entire global operation. I, did, have you read Martin Booth's book called Cannabis, A History? Oh, I highly recommend this for everybody. Um, it is it is fantastic. And Martin Booth is one of these sort of um, British authors who just sort of goes down the rabbit hole. Uh, and it's it's great to, to, to read. And I, and I believe, um, uh, Brian, it was from from his book that it was um, Connecticut and Massachusetts, where yes, you, you did have to legally, by law, plant at least a tablespoon of hemp seeds in your backyard. <laughs> Yes, um, because if people didn't, they found they, they couldn't make sailcloth. They, they couldn't, couldn't make, make soldiers' uniforms. They didn't have enough product production. Yep. And if you go to um, like Mystic Seaport in Connecticut on in, on the on the uh, on the Mystic, well in Mystic, um, they they still have one of the, the big rope making facilities that's there, and it's it dates back to like eighteen I'm gonna say eighteen thirty or so. I'm not don't quote me on that. Um, but that is all hemp rope that's that's there, and. Um, 
I'll, I'll throw out one other little nugget because I'm, this is like my Jeopardy night. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the UK, well, what was Great Britain at the time, um, they, because they were sort of the military sea power, um, they were competing against Russia for um, hemp manufacturing during the during their sort of like height of their navy period, and they had to import a lot of their sailing materials, sailing cloth, um, and hemp material from Russia, which at the time was the largest manufacturer of hemp in the world. Yeah, no kidding. This is wow. the fascinating side of the cannabis and the hemp industry that is just unbelievable as it's resurfacing. And yes, I I did meet Jeff. Whaling, and he is an absolutely vociferous advocate for 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 the hemp industry. Um, and I got to see the car, yeah, that, that uh, BMW made. It was very cool. Um, you know what I think is interesting, right? You mentioned the different grades, right? You know, the different classifications, and and we're seeing this finally start to evolve. And that's back to you know the role of standards and where we can you know discern or delineate between what does the FDA need to oversee, right? The FDA doesn't need to be involved in the, you know, and the industrial textile fibers that are going into your cars, right? Like that's a different set of standards, different set of oversight. But if we're talking about, you know, like the U.S. Pharmacopoeia's paper where they didn't publish a monograph because of the federal ban, but they, you know, developed, you know, uh, considerations for medical cannabis, uh, um, medical cannabis inflorescence, and they're putting the quality attributes out there. And they're saying, you know, for patients, right, there is a limit of, you know, there's no zero. That's the other thing, you know, without diving into that kind of nerdy rabbit hole, but there's levels of detection and limits of detection. And so what is the amount of microbial and yeast? What are, you know, what's the, what are the pesticides? What are those limits that we can put around to ensure that immunocompromised patients are safe? Right. And that might be a different level if it's just consumed or, you know, uh, flour combusted, but then you mentioned kill step, right, Brian, if it's going into production and it's, you know, submerged in ethanol at negative 20 C, well, mycotoxins can make it through that potentially, but the actual uh, living cells and cultures, they're going to, they're not going to make it. That's a kill step. If you can validate that, just like at Anheuser-Busch when they're doing their, the cleaning of their bright tanks and whatnot, you're not, you're not just scrubbing it saying, all right, put in a little bit of this, put in a little bit of that and should be good. You're doing verification. You're doing, you know, you're using test swabs, ATP, verifying that it actually is a kill step. <laughs> We can adopt all those same principles and back to, hey, if you've got moldy weed out in the field, doesn't look pretty, it's not the greatest. You know, you think about what goes into our smoothies, I could go on, but try to drive it back to there's different grades just because it aesthetically is maybe not as pleasing doesn't mean it doesn't have value in the extraction process for refined products. So we can delineate that and ensure that there's a marketplace that recognizes the different tiers for all the valid reasons. That's, that's, yeah, that's important right now. And I think at the, at the top end of that scale, if you call it the, the, the class one or the things designed for human consumption, there are many, there's many inconsistencies today within that level. I know that there are groups who use, there are people who use the extraction process as the cure for the ills uh, in the grow process. If the plant has, you know, levels of mold, well, you can just extract that away with a good bath of ethanol, right? Um and so there are levels within that that say, oh, well, we're going to reserve this area over here for our prized bud because we're selling flour for, you know, what, 3.5 gram sells for what, $45 at a, you know, at a pre- in a premium at a retail, at least here in Massachusetts. Um, um, but no one sees the bud if it gets extracted, right? So the bud doesn't have to have the same, um, but it should from a health and safety perspective. I think that's where we're coalescing here is that there has, these are all for human consumption. So all of these have to pass a heavy metals, right? No, no level of lead is acceptable. No level of arsenic and mercury and what else are we measuring for in terms of heavy metals? But- yeah. And, and for, for both of you, I and mean, that, that does come down to some of the, the safety questions that we're dealing with right now in, in, in an unregulated market where a lot of these products, again, are, are sort of being sold across the internet or, or state lines. Um, both both legally and illegally. And I, I would say I, I put legally sort of in hand quotes here because it's not, some of them are not really legal. Um, and in most cases, they're not. Uh, and you what, what you're not seeing are some of the additives that are also being added to these products too. So you have not only sort of, you know, varying levels of, of psychoactive materials in here and, and, and molecules, 
but you also have additives that are, you know, like flavors and all sorts of things that may or may not interact, that may or not be listed on the packaging, um, and that, you know, have dubious origins to begin with sometimes. And for example, the state of Pennsylvania just sort of cracked down on, on, um, on vapes, um, uh, I, th I think across the board, but I was reading it specifically for the cannabis market. Um, but they were saying that they, you had to list all the additives that were in there and the additives had to be FDA approved, which that's, we had that huge scare a year, two years ago here in Massachusetts with, uh, we had, a, we had a de at least one death, if not more of a sort of, was it a vitamin E additive that was added to the vape cartridges here in Massachusetts? And they shut the shut the shut the uh, shut the production down. I know a number of uh, of of our customers got got slammed uh, by that decision. But you know you have to you have to focus. On, and and that was from an illegal car. Those are from illegal sales. Those were not from regulated uh, producers. Those were from illegal producers who were adding these um, incorrect additives. Uh, but everybody got got. All the legal industries got shut down as a result of it. it was very, very controversial. Yeah, and, and you have a lot of these sort of small buyers too, like for example, gas stations and things that are getting duped into buying these products for resale market. Um, and they're they don't they think that because it's legal in the state that they can sell them, but they actually can't. They are for the most part illegal products that are being sold, um, and that we do need to sort of crack down on. Um, I, I was, I was very taken aback at some of like MJ biz and, and a couple of the conferences that, that I know you and David and I were all at, um, where you would have some of the, and I, I won't name names, but you would have a lot of little sort of, um, uh, event booths that were there that would have products. And at the bottom, it would say FDA certified. Uh, no, <laughs> this, this, this does not exist. There is no FDA certification for any of these products at the moment. Um, and I saw that on cosmetic products. I saw that on edibles. I saw that on some of the drinks um, and on some of the, the, the vaping products. Um, and that to me was sort of like, okay, we've really got a crisis in this industry that we have got to address very soon. And again, I think that that comes down to the federal regulators starting to take notice and to step in here because it's, it's only going to get worse. You know, I think Brian, and I remember you and I, I think we're in Boston at the event when Chalene Title made that announcement that day that, you know, Massachusetts took the, and it was the only state that banned all vape pens across the industry right. because right. of the, you know, Valley, you know, vitamin C state was kind of that, the culprit, <clears throat> but back to, and I, to my knowledge, there was no evidence that it was related back to any regulated products, which really, you know, that, that helped through throughout time. So it really came back to the whole importance of back to, yeah. The, the regulated marketplace is the one showing up, putting their best foot forward. We need to provide the uh, you know, framework and safeguards and you know, establish those minimum standards nationally because back to it's the illicit market. It's what you mentioned there, Sarah, that we're seeing at you know MJ Biz and where it's really easy for unscrupulous folks to come in under the guise of this federal marketplace and say, oh yeah, it's FDA approved, it's FDA registered, it's GMP, you know, approved. <clears throat> There's, you know, Delta 10, Delta 8, all these products that can kind of sneak under the radar and without having an, an overlord and overbody ensuring that that's not getting into consumers' hands, it's a really tricky situation and we need to really, we, we don't want to ruin the reputation that we have in the regulated industry because of those few bad actors. And it's, it's nonstop in terms of what creativity they'll come up with. And I, and I think David, you, you bring up a good point between, um, you know, federal and state rights too. And this is going to be an ongoing battle for the, for the end of time. This is what American democracy is built on. And we're, we're probably the better for it because sometimes it makes you think um, more strategically about some of the issues. Um, it does make you think through the unintended consequences. And it also gives you a chance to study what's being done really well. Um, and that, that to me is what should always be informing the, the federal regulatory agencies as to, all right, here are the states that are doing it really well. Here are the problems that they've already thought through and helped to solve. What can we learn from that? We don't need to reinvent the wheel um, and you know, just sort of take it from there. If, if there's a takeaway for the agencies at, at the federal level to be to be looking at, it is you know what are they should be examining what states are doing this really well, having those conversations, um, reaching out to the people who have been sort of doing this from the start, 
And then also looking at partners in like, like, like AHA in Europe who are taking the next step, who are going through a lot of the, the research um, because they, you know, their hands aren't as tied up as ours are um, and taking a lot of that feedback from them and implementing it at the federal level. Yeah, you know, even looking internationally, right, for a second, let's, let's not forget about Canada up, up sure. you know, north of us. And wow, they have a whole, since October 17th of 2018, they've had a fully legalized program. They've got Cannabis 2.0 now. They've got edibles. You know, they've brought on Flow and Steady, you know, very strict, you know, very, very strict, you know, marketing and labeling requirements. But they have a marketplace there. It's working. You can go, it's, it's incredible, you know, and what can we learn from there? Health Canada oversees that through good production practices. What can we learn back to let's not reinvent the wheel. We can really come together. And there's a framework for that to, again, protect consumer health and safety. Cause right now we're not doing that when products are crossing state lines and going unchecked. And I mean, I, I personally got into this industry because I, I, I feel that there's a lot of scientific research that's going to come out in the next few years about what the endocannabinoid system can do and how this can be a benefit to people who are dealing with neurodegenerative disease, with anxiety, with depression, with pain, with inflammation. So there's so much that we still don't know about the human body and sort of all the good that, that this plant can do. Um, so that was sort of the one of the first reasons I got into it. And then the other was just the the, um, the sustainability of hemp itself um, and being able to, to um, have, you know, good products, good clothing, um, you know, bedding for animals, food and fodder. There's so much that can be done with this um, that will help us sort of um, fight climate change and create just a sort of more conducive place to live and, and to be humans in. So that to me was the, the two main reasons to get into this industry. And then add on top of that, you've got, you know, a lot that you can do for um, health equity and social equity. And what could be a better well, industry to be in right now? We were all at we were all at the CWCBE in New York uh, down at the Javits Center. What was that? November four, five and six. And that to me was the biggest take. One of the biggest takeaways was the hemp industry. And uh, Jeff lined up. Um, um, the um, Black Buffalo 3D printing, the ability to now 3D print buildings. Uh, they, they're using a polymer base, I understand now in the in the admixture for the concrete, but they will soon be able to use hemp fiber in the for a uh, for a strengthening um, agent in the in the concrete, and it will be true hempcrete. 3D printed hempcrete was just a jaw dropper at that show. I was abs as an architect, absolutely just blown away by that and am now looking for any opportunity uh, with my customers who are willing to, you know, who, who believe, who hear that in the narrative for their business to 3d print their building uh, as an alternative to steel and, and, and traditional concrete um, would be just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a recovering horse person. <laughs> this is to say I no longer have a horse. Um, but I, I did, I, I, I did for many, many, many years. And, um, I'm excited about it for like bedding and footing and all sorts of things that you're, you're currently using. You know, there's a lot of different horse materials for it. Yeah. But, um, hemp would be great for this. The, um, the conversation I, I know Jeff and, and a lot of people in the hemp industry want to have with, with particularly the, the equestrian industry. Um, and this is sort of a, this has to do with, with, with the DEA and all sorts of other things and this sort of long history with this, the schedule one drug classification. But right now, if a horse eats hemp related bedding or food, it tests positive sport horses will test positive for drugs in their system and will not be able to compete. So I think that's, that's something that, um, the industry does have to bring up, not only with sort of like maybe us track and field, um, you know, USA swimming, gymnastics, whatever, for our own Olympic and, and athletic uh, committees, um, to make sure that, that marijuana use is, is not counting against you. Cause I, I don't think it's a performance enhancing drug. I'm just going to state that as a personal statement. Um, but it is also maybe something we get Michael Phelps, maybe we get Michael Phelps to come and talk on, on, on Absolutely podcast, should. Yeah. what his position is. And uh, who was our young Olympian here in the uh, most recent, um, young woman Simone in Biles. gymnastics, Simone Biles, uh, who was disqualified recently for, um, Oh, um, no, this was more recent. Yeah. Simone, uh, Shakari uh, Richardson from US. There you go. Field. Yep. Yeah, I thought that was, and the story, the backstory on that, I don't have it all straight, but she was dealing with family issues and she had a yep. grandparents. Had passed. I mean, it was just, 
And there was just complete insensitivity to that, right? And mm-hmm. understanding that that is not, you, that the, the consumption of cannabis is not, an, you know, incompatible with uh, with high-level uh, physical performance. Yeah, and that, you know, that opens the door for, for social, I think, for the other side of this conversation that we all need to have, too, which is the, the sort of history of, of cannabis and, and illegal drug use. Um, and, you know, we, we all, I don't think I need to, to overstate how important it is to to have that conversation and to make sure that that is absolutely a massive point in, in the dialogue that we all have going forward. Yeah. The book, uh, Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and, what is it, Rise of Marijuana in America by Emily Dufton. I just read that about a month or so ago, and that's really just everything you just mentioned, right? It, it paints the picture really well, um, you know, diving into you know, the Schaefer report in the sixties and Slinger, uh, you know, prior to that, right in the thirties and just the history of, of cannabis and its criminalization back to your point, right? We have so much opportunity to hopefully learn from that as a society. I think, you know, I'll even speak personally growing up. I wasn't a fan of history. I really, that was my least favorite class. My friends and, uh, you know, uh, teachers, wherever they are can probably laugh at me and, you know, remember that the, the things I did to just ignore it, you know, not pay attention to history class, but holy crap, we have so much power in understanding that, that we can apply and learn from. We don't have to make the same mistakes. There's a really great narrative here and we really need to right those wrongs. And there's what opportunity to actually do it in front of us today. Thank you for the recommendation. Literally just ordering it right now as you're talking. <laughs> I love it. Oh, and the other thing, right back to the performance enhancing. Um, I was actually just came out in the Denver press a couple of weeks, maybe a week ago. Um, I was trying to look for it on my, cause I had it handy somewhere. Um, they're doing, and again, this is a challenge of, you know, schedule one drugs. Um, but you, uh, UC Boulder, I believe it's up, up through Boulder. They're doing an observational study <clears throat> with um, ultra runners, ultra athletes, ultra runners, um, you know, that are coming in that have admitted to, you know, consuming cannabis and they're doing a study now looking at their performance, putting them on treadmills and comparing before, during and after cannabis use to understand, yeah, what is, because a lot of folks will talk in sports that it helps them focus, helps them push through, you know, those 50Ks when you're bonking that, you know, I've done a couple of, and it's, it's really, it's going to be really cool to see the data, right. That comes out of it to understand. You know, maybe, maybe we'll get Trevor, we'll get Trevor Moronis here on our, on our <laughs> podcast next, who is, who has battling epilepsy and, and doing, uh, doing ultra marathons around canyons in Nevada um, and not having any seizures and being just completely rocketed uh, out in the badlands of, of Nevada. He's amazing. I, I talked to him the other day and, and I think um, David and I both run ultras. So it's, it's, it was a pleasure to talk to him. Um, my, I, I'm, I'm very new to the cannabis space, um, both as a, both as part of the industry and as a, as a new user. Um, but my, my general perception on it, and I'll throw this out here as a further conversation point down the road is, you know, in, in, um, in exercise, there's what's called perceived exertion. And it's, it's basically the, you know, some days it seems really, really easy. And some days it's like a hard, massive slog. And it, it's not necessarily that your body's any more tired or that anything's sort of any difficult, but it's sometimes, you know, you had a really hard day at work the day before and all these things sort of, sort of compound on you. Um, and that stays in your memory bank and it's, it, leads to perceived exertion, which is that some days things just seem harder than, than they are. Um, and that's true of work, but in particularly in exercise science, it, it, it plays out. My, my recent foray into, into cannabis products seems to indicate that there is some way in which that does affect perceived exertion. And I'm, I'm curious to know, and this, this could be a long-term scientific study. I am not a scientist. I am, this is just me saying, oh, this is what, what seemed to happen with my body. Um, but it's, it's almost like, excuse me for forgetting the, the chemical in the brain that, uh, andandamide, can somebody remind and me? Andandamide, yeah. yeah. Which, which affects memory. And I'm, I'm curious to know whether it's because it sort of slows or blocks that a bit that it cuts down on perceived exertion. So I will state that that is the only thing that I have noticed in terms of its capacity. I mean, it, it doesn't make you run faster, right? But it, it does sort of cut down on on the fact that this feels like a slog. It makes it a little bit more bearable. Mm-hmm. 
fast. And I wonder if that has to do with memory and, and the way in which those chemicals interact. That, I'll throw, if there's a scientist listening, I'll throw that out there for you to examine. My wife is, my wife is a neuroscientist. She's a uh, neurologist. And um, our paths, our, our, our lives, our professional lives intersect here in the past seven years because cannabis, because of the rise of cannabis, uh, her subspecialty in neurology is movement disorders. And a large group of folks in the movement disorder world have Parkinson's disease. And so Parkinson's is what her mainstay of her practice is about. And she says that somewhere around 50% of her customers, or her, customer, her, her patients, are asking about efficacy of cannabis in dealing with movement disorders. So, um, um, a gentleman who just joined our, joined our board of directors is, is Ted Thompson, who's the SVP of public policy for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, and we're extremely excited to have him um, joining the board um, because of the work that they're doing in neuro, you know, in, in Parkinson's research. Um, he actually comes from the Multiple Sclerosis Society too, many, many years back. Um, and yeah, there's, they're, they're primarily interested in this because of medical use cannabis for returning veterans. And I, I think I've talked to you both at one, um, mentioning that between 10 and 12% of returning U.S. veterans develop Parkinson's over a period of time. Um, largely, they think because of chemical exposure to some of the burn pits. Um, and to whatever extent cannabis use can help them um, deal with the disease or sort of mitigate some of the symptoms, I think that's just fantastic because, again, it's, it, it seems to somehow slow or block some of the effects of, of neurodegenerative disease. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, again, I'm not a scientist, I don't know how it works, but um, the, the research is coming. And um, it's... I, I used to work for Alan Alda, who, who um, announced his Parkinson's a few years ago, and um, yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I, I do not believe Alan uses marijuana at all. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, he's he's somebody who's very interested in science, um, and I think that you know any kind of research that you can do into something that's going to alleviate or mitigate some of these symptoms isn't. Why not do it? Why not look at this? and see if there's a better alternative that's naturally plant-based too and plant-derived. This is where we're slipping. David brought up Canada, our neighbors, you know, if it's federally legal, you can do that kind of research. And we're slipping here as a nation in not allowing that research to happen over very, very, what are now well understood as minor hangups, right? There's stigma, this is pure stigma, these hangups and not fundamental for science. And we're, we're losing ground the longer we wait to actually allow this type of research to happen. Yeah, I mean, imagine if we had said, oh, aspirin, that's so bad for you, and we put that as a Schedule One drug. You know, still a plant-derived, originally, you know, why why not study it? Why not take a look at this and see if it works? Wow. Um, this has been awesome. I think, our next, I think we, need to, we need to, you know, maybe interview some scientists doing it, the front line of research, uh, and uh, maybe someone from Israel, from Tikkun Olam, or from, you know, from various places around the world where this is happening and, and, and try to get some of that um, down and, and, and I, all things to look forward to. I volunteer Reggie Gaudino too on our Science and Regulatory Affairs Committee. He's he's at Front Range Biosciences. He's a great, great guy to talk to anytime. Um, also on our, our uh, on our science committee is um, Vicki Seyfert Margolis, who's a former FDA leader and advisor. She's fantastic about all this too. And, and they, I've had masterclass conversations with them about the difference between synthetics and biosynthetics and naturally plant-derived. So anytime you have questions, just come to CFCR. We've got uh, so many people who we can introduce you to and happy to open the doors for these conversations to happen. Oh my God, I'm so excited for all of this. And, you know, there's um, I'll, I'll throw it. You know, Jehan Marku, Dr. Jehan Marku. Not sure if you guys have met him. Has been studied studied this at University of Southern Mississippi. You know, the only place doing research uh, since essentially the 70s, right? Um, got his PhD there, and I think around 2000, he's been doing this for 20 years. There's yeah, there's a great team. Reggie's fantastic. Gotten to meet him. We have, and you know, I think maybe just thinking about again. Maybe I sound like the broken record plug in the title here, whether it's Canada is a good neighbor, right? When they're legal marketplace, whether it's, you know, Dr. Reggie, <clears throat> Dr. Marku, um, you know, Vicky, all the folks that are here, you know, the, the um, gentleman, I forget his name that you mentioned that came from the um, Parkinson's Foundation, the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Look, 
you, Sarah, and your team. Look at Brian. Hey, where did you come from? You know, you didn't just come out of, you know, nowhere, right? There's some amazing talent and people with integrity and passion that are all here helping believing in the cannabis industry and recognizing the data and the writing on the wall. And holy crap, if that's a good neighbor today, you know, what's tomorrow going to bring? And it's just amazing to see the passion and the folks and the science that's finally starting to emerge that really supports just harm reduction basic best practices that we're really focused on here. What, so it's so cool. And I think we're all committed to sort of um, being good citizens here too. I mean, that underlines a lot of it as being both a good neighbor and a, and a good American citizen that you, you want to ensure the, the health and safety of your, of your fellow Americans, of your friends, of your neighbors, of your family. Um, so I, that's definitely one of the reasons I'm here and, and hoping that this industry thrives for a long, long time and is able to do some good for a lot of people. Uh, and, and I, thoroughly believe that it will and especially because it's got good people like like the two of you in this here too you know it's it's a good fight that we're in awesome well this has been a terrific conversation um sarah chase executive director for the council for federal cannabis regulation and david valancourt ceo and founder of gmp collective uh professionals providing gmp validation and certification uh throughout the u.s and canada and, and globally i suspect um, thank you both. This has been an awesome conversation. And thank you to your listeners for supporting this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And thanks for having us and to the listeners for getting something out of this and enjoying it.